We're continuing uh, in Esther and talking about the providence of God in this message series is called God, Guts, and Grit. And guts being having a stomach for it and, and having the courage and grit is the perseverance to carry out the, what God wants us to do. And this is a great story to do that. And we'll look at some other heroes of the faith as well that will help us encourage us. And when I read about people that have great courage and did great things for God, and then I read their backstory and their biographies and find out how normal they were and how like us and how flawed they were, it encourages me that, that you and I could be useful no matter how imperfect we are. Now, this particular book and Esther, there were you know, several theologians who really had a hard time with it. Um, if I remember right, it started with Martin Luther, never taught from the book of Esther, didn't like it. Uh, he wasn't even sure if it was canonical, it should be in there. You, you following him, Calvin, John Calvin, the great reformer, also had a struggle, never taught from it, struggled with it. And the reason they struggled with it is because in the entire book, the name of God is never mentioned. Think about that for a moment. It's never mentioned. And yet, through all of it, just like our life, there's times in your life, I mean, it's not every single day that you're doing church life, you know, where you're singing, where you're, you're working and you're doing stuff with your family, you're about your business, there's things that life that throws at you, right? And, and, and it's not like you're seeing God in, in all of it, it's just you're doing life. And yet we're really told to believe that even if his name isn't mentioned, that doesn't mean that he is distant that he is still working through all the details of our lives. He is working it together. He's holding everything together, as we said last week. All things are under his authority. We read in Ephesians 1.11 last week. I want to read it to you again, that we would take this in, because it will make a difference in your life if we believe this. We will see circumstances and chaos in our life differently than we do today. It says that this, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, in him, in God, we were also chosen. God drew you to himself. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, having been predesigned, a predestiny already in place in God's mind and sight in his view, according to the plan that God has a plan, and in that plan, God is the one that works out everything, not you. That takes a burden off of me and you. And when we work out the plan, it's to conform, to bend into and to mold in conformity with the purpose of his will. So he's got a will, he's got a plan, he's got a destiny that he wants to get us to. And Esther is showing us that. And all of this, and if I was going to give one major theme over, over all of this study it would be that God is ultimately in charge. He's in charge. Jesus said it that way in Matthew 28, 18, as we read last week. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All. Everything in the heavens, we believe that. Oh, he's got, God's got heaven. But down on earth, it doesn't look like it, that he's really got this. God will tell us in his word to submit to the authority. Why? Because all authority has been given to us from him, that he has designed that. Even the bad authority has a purpose. And as we said, just as a refresher from last week, that God is on a mission. 
His, his mission is to come and get us back into his home and his presence, a pl- place of protection, provision, and safety and love. That he wants to bring us to himself. And so he's on this chase like a romance of coming to get and bring as many people with him as possible into this. But also on the other side of that is a villain. You met the villain last week. By the way, when you hear the name of the villain last week, some of you may have heard this or someone next to you and you said, what did they do? And they went at the mention of his name. Judaic cultural custom, sometimes making noises, sometimes booing his name. And his name is Haman. We've had many villains through scripture. And the goal of Satan and his messengers and villains is, was originally to eradicate the seed of God. Going back as we did last week to Genesis 3.15, the very core. Understand that. You understand all of scripture's storyline is that there is an enemy, a serpent that deceived Adam and Eve. There was a fall. There was a detaching from God and God excluding them and exiling from his presence but ever since then he has been on a mission to get people back into his presence and to restore the garden the garden of life that we will be with him in eternity that's that's the whole storyline it's a romance if you can think of it on that term and so on the cross Jesus God accomplished what he did first part of the plan is that he accomplished overcoming evil with respects to his people. He had not completely destroyed Satan. That day will come when he will be of no menace to anybody in the world ever again. It's not come yet. So in the meantime, it is evil's job to go and to hinder as many people as possible from knowing God in his presence and to take God's people and to hinder them from advancing the kingdom of God. If we understand that, we will see the world differently. So Satan is recruiting messengers to fulfill his plan throughout history. He did it with Pharaoh. He did it with Herod. He did it with Haman. Mordecai was one of our characters. If you missed last week, he... He was the older cousin of a woman named Esther who was left orphaned. He took her in. He raised her like a father. Scripture tells us, as we met her last week, that she was beautiful in, in face and in figure. There was a king named Xerxes who dethroned his queen Vashti because she didn't obey her man. And he had her exiled and sent away from the palace, which opened a position, coincidentally, for somebody new, for a new queen. And then the king, in looking for a new queen, rounded up all the beautiful women in his province, and, he, he, and Esther was among those and had them all brought into one place. By the way, uh, Josephus, the historian, uh, writes that the number of those gathered was about 400. Esther had a lot of competition for the beauty contest. This was a lot bigger than Miss America or even Miss Universe. Now, I, I have a question for you. We, we need, before we go on, remember we left off, those were here last week, that the uh, decree had gone out, which had been the death sentence for all Jews 
in the provinces, for the 127 provinces. And we related that last week, if you remember, to the damsel in distress in a lot of our storylines, who is tied on the conveyor belt. Israel's tied up, and it looks like it's totally hopeless, and, and, is, and is on the belt, and over here is what, is a, it's one of those saws, right? And it's just going there. We're right there. And we left off last week, like everything looked hopeless. And if you believe in the providence of God, you will know, and you will know by experience, that when it looks hopeless, it doesn't mean it's over. That's really important. So the, the beauty, Esther, here's the question. Um, who was responsible for Esther's beauty? Her figure and all? Yeah. Does she have any say in that? No, they didn't have Peloton back then. They didn't have L'Oreal. They didn't have gyms. They didn't have plastic surgeons. She didn't have work done on her. And even if she had all those, you, there's just certain things in your genetics you just can't change, right? Most of you women are not going to have Halle Berry hips. It's not. No matter how bad you want, you can go to the gym all day long and work that, whatever that machine women do. That, like, no. You do that eight hours a day. If, you're not, if your genetics does not predispose to that, it ain't happening. She got some genes, and at the very end of it, if you believe God and his, that he is the one that created us, the, the bottom line here, and this is important in the backstory of understanding Esther, Esther was not responsible for her beauty. That was pre-designed, pre-ordained, and destined for her. I love the way the psalmist David writes it about God and us and the way we look and who we are. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Whatever God gives you is for his glory. Now, you may say to yourself, I, I'm short. I don't like being short. I feel short, and you're obsessed with that. Some guys are, by the way. Some women are obsessed with being too tall, and I'm just, why, did, why am I so tall? And maybe on the attractive scale, on a scale of 1 to 10, you're a 5, and you're like, why couldn't I have been an 8 or a 9 or a 10? And by the way, self-image, if you want to improve your self-image, if you can see your image through the providence of God's eyes, it will change your self-image because you will do what David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fill in the blank after made. I am fearfully and wonderfully made short, tall, not beautiful or beautiful. Whatever that is, fill that in with a medical condition. You didn't pick your parents, did you? Many of you wish you could have. You didn't pick your upbringing. You didn't pick your handicaps. You didn't pick your medical condition. Jesus was asked by his disciples and looking at a lame man. They said, Jesus, looking at this lame man, they said, who is responsible? Why is this man lame? His mother or father? And Jesus answered and said, it, it was neither his mother or his father. It's so that the works of God may be displayed. And so in you, the works of God are to be displayed in the things that look like 
shortcomings or the things that are of value and advantage into this world. In Esther's case, her beauty. We assign value subjectively in our culture. Every culture has always done that. And if presently, if you want to know younger person speak, singles, you understand this. There's this, the, the saying that goes out, there's, there's high-value men and low-value men and high-value women and low-value We're putting value on people. We've, we value, we, we, put a, the, we put a zero value on an embryo unless we want it, and then all of a sudden we put a 10 on it. Otherwise, it's a zero and we eliminate it. We value things as worthless, anything that disrupts our life. We value those in our current culture, those who live contrary to God's will. We value them as heroes, and we value those who speak in righteousness as the villain. We have a value system. But the truth is, only God assigns one's true value. Only he gives it. He is the author of your value. And he uses your flaws and your defects. And that's where I want to go today in filling this in. Because we need to fill in some of this story before we go on to see what happens to our damsel in distress. Esther is Jewish. And Mordecai told her, do not admit to your heritage. Keep it on the down low, Esther. Even though you're in this harem and the queenship will do it. He said it this way in Esther 2.20. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. Now I want you to think for a moment her mother and father had passed, her grandparents had passed away. They would be turning in their grave, wouldn't they? How, how could you, Esther, deny your heritage and who you are? You are who you are. We would all agree with that. And, and you listen to Mordecai who tells you to keep it down. It would be infuriating to them. And then Esther, what are you thinking? You have allowed yourself to be taken into the king, this pagan king Xerxes. You allowed yourself to go with this group and be thrown in as just another member of his harem or one of his concubines even worse. That is an affront to God and an affront to our people. That's what they would say and what many probably did say. Many would be outraged at Mordecai, who, as you remember from the story last week, who happened to be at the gate, just happened to be. And he heard about a plot to overthrow King Xerxes. And, and instead of walking away and say, finally, God, thank you, Adonai, for getting rid of the king as we've been waiting to do, instead he he turned the two criminals in, went through Esther, who got the credit along with Mordecai, and, uh, and they were destroyed, and the king was saved. And you can imagine that his townspeople, his Vela villagers were saying, Mordecai, why did you do that? We've been trying to get rid of him. And yet he did it. And so I, I say all that to say this, and it's an important part of the context. God's plan God's plan is in no way hindered by our flaws, failures, or defects. His plan is not at all hindered by our flaws, failures, and defects. He will accomplish his plan even with and even because of your flaws, failures, and defects. Now, that's very comforting, I would think, for many Think about that for a moment and all your flaws and all the time you disqualified yourself, all the time you said, I can't be of any use, all the time you made that decision 
when God already pre-knew who you were and what you'd do and the mistakes that you'd make. Well, going on in this story, there's some hostility, there's a battle, and we saw it last week. There's this hostility between Mordecai and Haman. There's a, there's a conflict, yes, boo. Um, but I want to see why, let's look at the backstory because this is important to God's story here. We're going to go back and look at Mordecai again in Esther 2, verses 5 and 6. It tells us very clear, clear in God's scripture who he is, and there's a reason that we're told who he is. So Bible students, listen up. Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Who is Kish? We know from 1 Samuel 9, 12 that he is the son of the king Saul. So Mordecai is a direct relation and descendant of King Saul. Stay with me in the story. King Saul had an order, an edict from God, directly from God, that told him to annihilate the Amalekites, the king Amalek, Amalek and all of the nation. of They were an evil people. He said, eliminate them. And Saul went into battle, and guess what he didn't do? I think we'll just keep them. They're just fine. Just, we, we're not going to destroy the Amalekites. They didn't have harm to us. We did no harm to them. It's not, worth the, it's not worth the effort. But I want you to guess who Haman is for a moment. Haman hated Mordecai and the Jewish people. Why? Listen to these words in Esther 3.10. So the king, this is King Xerxes, he took his signet ring from his finger and he gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. An Agagite is a descendant of King Amalek. Haman is an Amalekite, a living Amalekite. Going and rooted back because of what Saul and those underlings of him failed to do when God had instructed them to do it. And so you see these two people, and I'm going to read further. We're just going to go in our scriptures. I'm going to look at Exodus for a moment so we can piece this whole thing together. So in Exodus 17, verses 9 and 14, we're back to this place. Some of you may remember the story where there's a big battle, and, and God is having Moses' hands raised by two of his, and then he gets tired, and he put a, a rock from the sit, but as long as his hands are raised, they would be victorious in battle, and they had victory. So this is where the story starts. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go to fight the Amalekites. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Going on, Exodus 17, 15, and 16. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of God, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Can you piece it together now, brethren? You have a descendant of Saul on the Jewish side, and you have an Amalekite. And God said, I will 
be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation, and here we're looking at it head to head, one at the other. There's no accidents. This is all intentional. There's a storyline under it that God has this providential plan in place, and he's chosen these characters in particular. He chose the villain, and he chose the hero who ultimately is him. There are serious, if I just put a side note, there are serious long-term consequences for disobeying God. Can you see him here? You have evil still reigns because someone that disobeyed God. And it will carry on, your sins will carry on from generation to generation. The story continues, our damsel is in distress, she's on the belt, she's going to the blade. Satan's plan was to destroy the seed of the Messiah, we'll just take a look at that again. And so that there is this decree that goes out that all of the seed potential of the Messiah would be destroyed and ultimately by Satan using the evil Haman. So having been told who Mordecai's people were, the Jewish people, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes, the 127 provinces. There was a reaction to this decree from Mordecai. Can you imagine this decree going out? And it's public knowledge. Maybe it's even posted up on the board. Everybody knows, and your name is on it. This is the reaction. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Picture that for a moment. Your life is over. Who is in charge? Well, of course, it's King Xerxes, and now his right-hand prince, Haman. They have all the cards, they have all the money, they have all the power, they have all the authority. You have nothing. It's over. Or is it? People are feeling defeated. Do you guys remember, some of you are too young to, to remember this. You remember Baghdad Bob. When, when the United States went in to uh, emancipate Kuwait after Iraq had invaded them and taken them over, um, when we went into that squirmish, there was a spokesperson for, for Iraq, for Baghdad. And, and I love it, and I made note of it, because it was all recorded in the Washington Post. And I, and I just want to read it to you. This, this is a case where someone comes out and is saying, it's all over. So Baghdad Bob would come out and just say the most craziest things. And so one of his, his edicts, uh, he came out and he spoke. And this is, I think it was, if I'm remembering right, April 6th. 2002, uh, the U.S. had gone in and we got air superiority. We took over the entire airways. We took Baghdad Airport and we totally owned Baghdad Airport. We had planes flying in and flying out of the airport. We ran it. But this is what Baghdad Bob said. <laughs> I love it. It's hard to read with a straight face. There is no presence of American columns in the city of Baghdad at all. We besieged them and we killed most of them. 
we butchered the force present at the airport. Really? You know, that's the message we get in our life daily. You watch your news service, you read your little feed that coming in, the blog post, it sounds like it's all over. It's just all over. What you got is a bunch of voices from evil messengers uh, uh, from Baghdad Bob kind of spirit who are just telling you it's done, we've killed you, you're destroyed, it's the very last of it. Pardon me if you've Arabic descent, I do apologize if I've butchered that, but there was no other way I could do it. So. <laughs> So in this story, of course, they're going to have this reaction. But the question that you had to ask, if this was you, the question you need to ask yourself is who is in charge? Really, who's in charge? I mean, this is what it looks to be in charge, but who's really pulling this plan together? So here's another important part of this story, the backstory you need to know. When they made that decree, they had to pick a date when this war would happen and all the Jews would be annihilated. In order to do it, they took a pur or a lot, and they threw lots. That's where we get the name Purim from in the Jewish celebration. They, that they cast a lot for the day. They needed the day and they needed the month from the Jewish calendar. And so here's what happened. This is when this Holocaust would take place. They believed, they probably went to their pagan gods and said, oh, pagan gods, could, could you please tell us, give us the right month and give us the right day? Maybe they prayed in the name of King Xerxes, who they thought was a deity. Oh, to the, through the name of the great king, would you give us the right month and the right day? And they thought they were in charge. Listen to this. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Xerxes, they cast per, which means the lot before Haman for the day and for the month, and the lot fell on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. When do you think that lot fell? Just in your mind. Oh, it's really coincidence, by the way. It, it fell at the beginning when they threw the lot and the death decree, it just happened to be Passover. Passover is what? It's the cello. It's the commemoration and the remembering that God had ordained because there was a death decree that went out that all the sons, two and younger, would be killed and that God would pass over those who would come under his safety of protection under the blood over the mantle. And so Passover was a commemoration of a death decree. And for many, they did suffer death, but not God's people at least not those who by faith obeyed. And so the people are getting this news during this commemoration, this celebration, this feast of Passover, at a time when another death decree came many hundreds of years before, and they were remembering that how God had spared them. And yet the scripture says in this account that the people were in confusion, and of course they were in terror, and of course they mourned in sackcloth and ashes. But do you believe it was a mistake for a moment that the decree of death went out on Passover? Not knowing about the edict yet, Esther saw Mordecai and heard that he was in sackcloth and ashes and she just assumed he must not have any clothes to wear. So she, she sent a, one of her attendants out and now she's a queen. And by the way, even though she was beautiful and form and all, 
you might find this interesting. She had to have one year of spa treatments for sure before she was even allowed to come into the presence of the king, oil and myrrh and whatever they do in their, in their treating of her skin and her beauty and her diet. So Hathak, the scripture says in Esther 4, 6 through 7, so Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And then Mordecai uh, asked Esther to use her position to beg for money. So Hathak, her attendant, went out. He got all the information. He goes out and gets, he, he gathers this. He gets a copy of the edict. And so Mordecai gives Hathak. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for he, their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told him to instruct her, to instruct Esther, to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and to plead with him for her people. Don't you imagine a minute that you're, you were just a poor villager girl, orphaned, raised by your older cousin. And you had beauty in your favor, and that beauty got you into the presence of the king, at least into uh, his trophy queen. She gets this word, and she writes back to Mordecai, and she says, all the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for a man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. And she said, and, and you know the law, Mordecai. I can't go to the king if I go there without being summoned at his permission that there's only one law, and it says, I will die. It's a big deal. Human nature, by the way, is to save your skin first. That's the first reaction. That's why she's writing this, like, hey, can't, hey Mordecai, you got to have a better plan than this. How about plan B? I'm thinking plan B sounds good. And, and then she, I love that, that she, she ends it with this emphasis. She says, but 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. I, I I haven't even been called up to see the king for a month. And so there's, I, I don't expect that I'm going to be called anytime soon to his presence. And so you're just asking me to walk in there and say, I'm here, you know, and flip my hair back a little bit and get all dressed up, and that's going to work? I, I just want to say, remember we talked last week about the, the, the real and the false, Right? So think of that law for a moment. Anyone who is the peer before this pagan king will die. Anyone to appear before the king of kings will die. Do you see the, you see the mockery that Satan makes? He makes a decree to mimic God's, and yet God's is the real one. And Moses, he, he couldn't even look God in the face. That he had to be hidden in the cleft of a rock. God had to move with his back and not even show and shine his face to him. Anyone would be in the presence on the holy mountain. Take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. And we're on holy ground in his presence. And yet, just deposit that in your mind for a moment. 
So Mordecai exhorts Esther. He comes back to her in her response, and, he, and he's saying to her, Hey, Esther, honey, I, I know I'm just putting words here. I know that you're worried about dying, but if you don't do this, don't think for a moment you're not going to die anyway. So you've got nothing to lose. This is, this is rational mind. This is, this is sensible thinking here. We need a lot more sensible thinking. You know, when you go crazy and everything's bad and you got Baghdad Bob in your ear and the whole world is all over and it's terrible and there's chaos swirling around and we're never going to get out of it. <laughs> you, you need a voice of reason. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Aren't those beautiful words? Mordecai could see what Esther did not see, what most of us have a hard time seeing. He saw the provident hand of God. He saw a sovereignty of God. He saw somebody who had air superiority and had taken over and really was in control. He saw the big picture of God and he wasn't focused on the little incident. And he saw for a moment that his, his young cousin's beauty was opportunity, was opportunity to be admitted entry so that she could save her people and save the seed of God and that God had ordained it for a time just as this. He doesn't want to lose Esther. Do you think Mordecai is there as a father figure thinking, oh, no, I don't care if she dies. He's not callous. He loves her. We see that in the earlier script of, of the way that he is caring for her and checking on her and at the gate and looking for her, making sure she's okay. But he knows that the stakes are very high and that God had given her a gift that was from him and that this would be the time to use it. I love Esther's reply because this is gut and grit right here. This is where all gut and grit comes out. She had to process this. She had to make a decision, brethren. We're all making decisions. And as the world changes in on us, and we're clearly, by the way, the far minority in this world, we've got to start acting like the minority and not the majority. Truly, 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 great polling on this, great research. Only 6 to 9% of America is truly, truly, as you would call, really born-again Christians. That's the minority. And you've got to think like, a, like an Esther and a Mordecai at this moment, that, that one day you will take a stand. One day you will have to stand. That there will be decisions and there will be opportunity that you make. And that decision, even though we're not here yet, we need to make that decision now. Decide now. Play that tape in your mind. Esther's reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Wouldn't you do that? You'd be on every pray, prayer chain in the world. Pray and fast. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, 
And even though it is against the law, if and if I perish, I perish. Do you think that was easy? Did she feel that? No. She wasn't feeling bold and she wasn't feeling courageous. There was no gut. She didn't have a stomach for this any more than any of us do. She just made a decision. Yeah, if I perish, I perish. The easiest thing for Esther to have done is to identify as a pagan. Just, I'll just re-identify. Isn't that going on today? Let's just re-identify. I don't know. I don't know my gender. I don't know what I am today. Cis, non-binary, whatever they are. It's like the list is this long. We've, we've replaced God and believe that somehow we can be him. That we can just make these decisions. God gives the identity. Jesus faced a similar choice. By the way, he was 100% human, also 100% God. And so we know at his final moments as he was facing the cross and the wrath of his father and separation from God the Father for the first time ever, ever, at that moment in agony, he was also in agony. And he also went to pray and he went and fell to his knees three times in that garden. And it wasn't until the third time when he got up that he exercised the grit and the guts and he looked at his disciples and he says, let's go, now is the time. Let's go. It's time to go. He led it. He led himself into captivity just as Esther had done. Close with this. And, and, and by your actions and by your reactions to things in this world, what does that say about who you think is in charge? Who's in charge, really, in the mind when things go in chaos? And like, are we thinking like Mordecai providentially, he's pulling it all together? Or are we just losing our minds? Will you put your confidence in a government or in a system of economics or politics, or will you put it in the one and only God? There are consequences for disobedience, and some of those are long-term consequences. Is there places in your life of disobedience that you can go back and say, God, I'm sorry, let me redo here? Will you dare to identify as God's when the time comes? Be different and be set apart. That's the question to answer. And all of us in our, in our heart of hearts, except for maybe a few alpha males, are thinking in their heart of hearts, there's no way I can do that. And the truth is you can't. It's only by him. We sang it today. When personal defects plague you, are you disqualifying yourself because of your flaws and imperfections and somehow you get to sit on the sidelines and nurse those? Or, or do you recognize that God uses people like you and me who are flawed and have our defects, imperfections, and our failures, many failures, that that's who he uses, and that's all he's used all through Scripture. He's never, he didn't use, except for his own son Jesus, he didn't use a perfect person in all of Scripture. Can you see that the random circumstances that look random in this life are not so random in your life? Your life is not as random as you think. Your upbringing wasn't random. Your looks are not random. Where you've been placed in life and the neighborhood you grew up in, none of that is random, that God is conforming it to his will. And he's doing that for you. I want to close with that. And we've got a song we're going to sing. I don't know that we've sung it before. It's Though You Slay Me. And just hold on to that, that even no matter the chaos and no matter how much I feel slain, that God will see me through and he's still there. And we can sing that by faith, can't we? Would you all rise with me?